Now, we began last Lord's Day evening um, a series of studies from the scriptures of this question, how do we define the church? What is it? And I think it's very important for us to remember that Paul says in the fifth chapter of this very epistle that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And there we see how altogether precious the church was and is to our Lord Jesus Christ. It is for the church that our Lord Jesus was born into the world. It was for the church that he laid down his life in that bloodletting, life-giving, sacrificial death that he might redeem the church unto itself. And last time we began to answer the question, how do we define the church? What is it? And we saw that the church is a chosen people, that the church is a sovereignly chosen people. It is out of God's good pleasure that we, you and I, are chosen to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. So more than that, we are sovereignly chosen in Jesus Christ from the perspective of eternity. And it is the triune God's purpose then to save a people and to give that people as a gift to his son. And it's as the covenant head of his people that the son of God, Jesus Christ then, was born into the world. He came as the king who would represent and substitute for the people given to him by his father. But while that is the truth, it is not the whole truth with respect to the church. And I think we have another question I'd like to address tonight, namely, and that question can be formulated something like this, how do the chosen people from all eternity in Jesus Christ come to be in history part of the church? Of Jesus Christ. Now, this question is raised in the manner of speaking very pointedly and very strikingly by the apostle in the second chapter of this epistle in verse 3. We, Paul says, just as the rest of mankind, me, he's saying, no less than you, we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath. That is, those who are under God's condemnation and judgment. That's what I was. Though covenant child, I was. That's what I am by nature, a child of wrath. And then the pressing pressing question that arises from that consideration is, how does someone like Paul, who describes himself as someone like this, a child of wrath, though he is at the same time a child of the covenant, how does someone like Paul, who was chosen in eternity in Christ, come to be included in the church in history? How is it that he, as well as a multitude of others set apart from all eternity, chosen by God, how do they come into the church? And the answer to that question is simply 
and profoundly this. Paul was included in Christ in history when he came to believe Christ by faith. And so in verse 13, Paul writes, In him you, the Ephesians, also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in which, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And we saw last Lord's Day that the eternal covenant of redemption undergirds that. We come to Christ in history because God has been pleased to set us apart unto himself in eternity. But while we must emphasize that we are set apart unto Christ in eternity, no less must we emphasize that that is brought to fruition in history when and only when we place our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sinners are not justified in eternity. We're chosen in eternity, but until we believe, we remain under God's wrath. But without faith, it is impossible to please God, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Perhaps you remember in that catalog of astonishing privileges which Paul gives us in the ninth chapter of Romans concerning the Jews, that unusually favored and blessed and privileged people. And Paul writes these words beginning in verse 2. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are the Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the services of God, and the promises, he says, of whom are the fathers. And then take this in, the apostle is telling us, from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. And yet he says, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. And he tells us why in the next chapter, chapter 10 and verse 1. Because they are not saved. In spite of all of their privileges, they have not embraced the righteousness of God that has freely been offered to them in Jesus Christ. And make, make sure of this The Jewish people had had an avalanche, as it were, of gospel privileges in Jesus Christ. And it was to the point that even their privileges were crying out against them. There is no substitute for faith. Nothing can be substituted for faith in Jesus Christ. You were included in Christ after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now I want this evening to look at two things together. Two things from these verses. And uh, I want you to notice very simply, uh, as I hope to make these uh, points to you, that the preaching of the gospel is God's principle and ordained means for bringing sinners into his church. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. 
And you'll remember how Paul makes precisely the same point in the 10th chapter of Romans in verse 19 or 17 when he says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They did not come to be included in Christ in in some esoteric, mysterious way. They came to be included in Christ after they heard the word preached to them and they embraced him by faith. Now that's why it always needs to be said, and I think said often enough and loudly enough so that all people can hear it and learn it, that divine sovereignty makes neither faith nor evangelism unnecessary. Because it is only because of God's gracious will that anyone is saved. And the only hope that evangelism has any hope whatsoever of success is that and it's ever possible for anyone to believe is that God in Christ saves them through faith in Christ. Now by nature, Paul tells us, chapter 2, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Sin has put out our eyes. It, it has made our ears death. It has corrupted our wills. We lie before God as dead men and women boys and girls. And if evangelism is to have any hope of success whatsoever, if faith is to be possible for any, it is because God is sovereign and He is able to make dead men and women live and plant saving faith in their hearts that were once dead towards God. So the Apostle tells us here that the means by which the Ephesian Christians came to be included in Christ was that they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation. God had sent among them those who would make known to them His word of truth. And we need you and I in these days when evangelical Christianity is being disfigured and misrepresented from many different sides, we need to be reminded again that it is preeminently through the preaching of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. It is through the proclamation of the Word of God that people are brought to the Son of God and united savingly to Him through faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now I think this raises two questions for us. And the first and obvious is this. Do you see, indeed do I see, that we have a holy obligation and the privilege to make known to men and women everywhere the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that God has revealed to us in Holy Scripture? Do you see that we are God's means for bringing people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you see that we're means in this world God uses us to speak to other people, to bring light 
in the darkness and the unbelief of our world? Do we see that we have an obligation like Paul that we are debtors to Jew and Gentile alike? We see that our Lord Jesus in the gospel, uh, Matthew chapter 9, that he was moved with compassion when he saw the multitudes. Do we know anything of that kind of compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. He sees them without, as sheep without a shepherd. They were heading unmorsefully and to a ruined eternity. And he prayed and he encouraged his disciples to pray. The fields are white already for harvest. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into his harvest. In a practical way, Do we, do you and I pray each morning, Lord, grant me the opportunity, feebly maybe, but with your sustaining help to commend the word of truth to those with whom you bring me into contact throughout the day. That's a general thing I know, but there is a second related question, and it's a little more pointed, not direct to some of us, Not direct to all of us, rather, but to some of us. And that is this. The Lord has said, whom will I send and who will go for us? Because while every believer has a holy obligation to commend and make known God helping them, the word of truth, the gospel of men's salvation, it pleases God to raise up certain men from within his church to proclaim that gospel. Remember Paul's great admonition to Timothy. He said, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. Let this be the defining work, he says to Timothy, as a man of God, you preach the word. Declare, he says, the unsearchable riches of your God in Christ Preach that word. And so it has pleased God to raise up within his church certain men, lay his hand upon them, those who will give themselves wholly and exclusively and undistractedly to the great work of making known the word of truth, the the word of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. I think it's very important as we reflect upon the words of John Calvin. He said, Among the many excellent gifts which God has adorned the human race, it is a singular privilege. Note this. It is a singular privilege that he deigns to consecrate to himself the mouths and tongues of men in order that his voice may resound in them. Think of that. A singular privilege of all the privileges which God has given blessed humanity that he so deigns to consecrate himself the mouths of men, the mouths of mere fallible, mortal men, frail men, in order that his voice may resound in them. That's astounding. And so I would simply say, some of you young men here this evening, does anything of the apostles' words like that echo 
in your own soul. Is our God saying, whom shall I send? Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Would you be willing to go? Would you say, Lord, here am I, send me. But then secondly, and more pertinent to our point tonight, the gospel, you'll notice here, must be believed as the word of truth. If you are to be included in Christ, again, in Him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The apostle also writes in the third chapter of his epistle to the Galatians, verse 14, and he tells us that we receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Faith in faith alone brings you and me into Christ and in Christ into the church of Christ. But this again, I think, leaves us asking the question, what does it mean to believe the word of truth? In him you also trusted. What does it mean to believe in the gospel? It means essentially two things. It means first, to accept and embrace God's testimony concerning his son and God's testimony concerning yourself as well. True saving faith, faith that brings us into the Lord Jesus Christ is a faith that engages the mind. You accept the word of God he has spoken concerning his son and concerning you. You believe, you embrace to yourself, you confess your confidence in, as it were, what God has declared concerning Jesus Christ in the gospel. For faith is built on the solid foundation of what God has done in Christ and what God has said in Christ. Faith believes that he was born by the miraculous, mysterious work of God's Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Faith believes that he united a human nature unto his divine Nature. Faith believes that he lived a sinless life and that he died a sin-bearing death and that he rose the third day bodily from the grave and that he ascended into heaven. And if people say, why do you believe it? You say, because God has testified to it, has spoken it in his word. Let God be true and every man a liar. Faith believes God's testimony concerning his son, that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But no less does faith also believe what God says in his word about every single one of us, the best of us as well as the worst of us, that we're all of us by nature dead, in trespasses and sins, that we are the children of God's wrath, that we have sinned against God and brought ourselves under His just, holy, and rightful condemnation, that we are at our very best, you and I, judgment-deserving sinners, altogether 
hopeless, helpless, totally disabled because of our union with Adam and because of the corruption of our nature. And we believe the testimony of God as the Spirit echoes it in His Word and resounds it also in our own hearts. And so we need to start here because faith is not created in some kind of vacuum. Faith is not some esoteric, undefined experience that we somehow muster up within ourselves. Faith rests upon the infallible testimony of the true and living God is breathed out in His Word. And the second thing we need to say is this. Yes, believing does mean to accept and embrace God's testimony concerning His Son and concerning ourselves. But true faith, true believing in Christ is more than that. It is not, my dear friends, less than that. But it is more than that. Faith accepts God's testimony. And it accepts his testimony as Christ is freely offered to us in the gospel. He is offered to us as that one sacrifice who has put away sin by the perfection of his sinless life and his atoning death. On behalf of all of his people as the great penal substitute of sinners and he has offered to us as well as our king as the one who would come and rule over us by the scepter of his word regulating our lives according to the standard of what God has spoken faith in Jesus Christ is yes accepting his testimony but more than that it is resting the weight of all that I am upon the sure and solid foundation of all that Christ is as he is freely offered to us in the gospel. The Westminster Confession of Faith, a wonderful, wonderful confession, tells us in the 14th chapter and the second paragraph, it has this wonderful statement there about faith. It says, the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. What a great statement that is. The principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone. One of the distinctive Old Testament Hebrew words for faith has the idea of rolling your life and allowing it to rest its weight upon the sure foundation of who God is. Saving faith is resting the weight of your never-dying soul upon the reality of all that Christ is as he's freely offered to us in the gospel. Coming to him in your brokenness, in your desperateness, in your separation from God, in all of your nasty corruption and your hopelessness and saying, there is no other name under heaven who can do me any good but you, the Lord Jesus. 
Dear people, this is faith. Nothing less. Nothing less and nothing more. Faith alone in Christ alone. Not obedience in faith, not sacramental faith, but faith in Jesus Christ unites us to the Son of God and brings us into the enjoyment of all the blessings which He has won for all who belong to Him. At this point you may be asking, but David, if people are dead in trespasses and sins, how can anyone believe? Well, as Paul goes on to tell us in the second chapter of this very epistle, that faith is the gift of God, that He gives it to whomsoever He wills. But I'll tell you this, the New Testament is far more concerned to press upon us, you and I, the necessity of faith than it is to confront us with the origin of faith. The origin of faith lies with God. It is His pleasure to give it, and we use and exercise it. We can, I think, spend too much time contemplating on the origin of faith when what we need to do is go to God in prayer and say this, Lord, You're the giver of every good and perfect gift. It is your good pleasure to give faith to all of those who ask you for it. Give me that faith that I may believe and embrace your Son. You know, Augustine said, Command what you will, O God, and give what you command. We see in these verses then that everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone, they are brought to God. They have heard the word of truth. They have believed the gospel of their salvation. And every member of the church of Jesus Christ has this in common, particularly communicant believers, that all of us are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And such people, as Paul goes on to tell us in verse 14, are God's possession. The demarcating feature of every true member of that company of people, which is the church of the living God, is this. They have put their faith in Christ alone. They have come to rest the weight of their never-dying souls upon the only one who is the perfect sacrifice and substitute for them. And if that means anything then surely it means us that we should treat every believer, every believer, as a brother or sister in Jesus Christ, whoever they are, whoever they are. They may be a member in another mainline denomination, but if their faith is in Christ, we need to remember, you and I, that they are our brother They are our sister. And if they're placing their trust alone in Jesus Christ, they're walking with us to glory. They're pilgrims on the celestial road. I think Augustine again put it so beautifully when he said these words. This has always been an encouragement to me. He says, but what can be plainer than the many weighty testimonies of the divine declarations, he's talking about the scriptures he's read, which afford to us the dearest proof possible that without union with Christ, 
There is no man who can attain unto eternal life and salvation and that no man can be unjustly damned that is separated from that life and salvation by the judgment of God. So what then is the church? It is the fellowship of the forgiven. But it is more than that as we're going to see in the future, but it is never less than that. It is people who have been united to Christ by faith. It is believers in Christ. And I suppose if we were to turn the meeting tonight to an old-fashioned testimony meeting, that many of you could have a very different story about how you were brought to the Lord Jesus but my friend, the critical, story, the critical thing is not the story that brings you there, but that by the grace of God, you have been brought there. Ransom healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me should sing his praise? Whatever may be true of us, we should be marked by the Spirit of amazed gratitude that God would ever save such as the likes of me. May God grant us the grace ever to rest the weight of all that we are, you and I, upon the sufficiency and person of all that the Lord Jesus Christ is and has done, accomplished on behalf of his people. There is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. Let's pray.